We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. I'm your host this evening, Tim Stillman. Elliot is still gallivanting on his cruise, um, so I'm taking the wheel tonight. Um, And it finally happened. Arsenal won a Premier League game for the first time in nearly two months. And to help me uh, talk over the historic events at Emirates Stadium on Wednesday night, I'm delighted to be joined by... Clive, who you can find on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Good evening, Clive. Good evening. I can't wait to talk about a football match. Can't wait. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm in control here. Um, and uh, joining us as always is Paul, who you can find on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! Um, thank you. And in this. In this celebratory podcast where we're going to absolutely rake the bones over a 3-0 win over West Ham, um, I think it's only right to start in a spirit of sickening, disgusting self-congratulation. On the post-Manchester City podcast, we had a kind of lengthy discussion about the Xhaka Coquelin midfield partnership. I think we were all of the consensus to one degree or other that it didn't really work and that Xhaka and Coquelin is slightly uneasy partnership Um, and actually we spoke a little bit about um, Xhaka and Elneny which I think we all felt had looked good um, in the past and deserved a little bit more of a showing. Um, We got a bit more of a showing on Wednesday night and I think pretty unanimous that that Arsenal fans were quite impressed with what they saw. I thought um, for, for my money it was it was 
probably Granite Jacker's best game um, in an Arsenal shirt. And Clive, you were very um, enthusiastic about the prospect of this partnership of Xhaka and Elneny. Um, and and Jacker's performance was was just absolutely brilliant. How much of that do you put down to the partnership with Mohamed Elneny? And how much do you put down to the fact that West Ham were you know, low on confidence, they sat off and they gave him room to do his thing? I think uh, any team that sits off Arsenal, well, we're going to do quite well. And, um, we probably found the one team that was in worse shape than we were in the whole the league. Right? So, um, so we needed West Ham. But I've always felt, even before the season started, that this combination, if we are going to play a two, and I don't always think we should, but if we are going to play a two and we spend £35 million on a, a centre midfielder, we need to invest in him, we need to commit to him. And he's somebody in Shaka that he has issues with you know, defensive space and uh, he has issues with somebody who's too far away from him. And the player that cares most about his defensive distances and he's available for short combinations and allows Shaka to shift, move lines, receive it, move it quickly. The player that brings the best out of him for me has always been El Nenny. And, um, and El Nenny doesn't actually care about his own performance. He just cares about that space in the centre of the pitch, controlling it, getting a rhythm, getting a flow going. You've often heard me say that Arthur are a team of flow. So why don't we pick a player that gets us flowing? And it, it, it just seems obvious to me. And I'd hear Wenger talk about it today at the press conference. was like, come on, this has been staring in the face for ages. As soon as we start flowing, the whole team gets confident. And so we should be looking for that attribute into our team play much more often. And again, what I like about Oneni also is that he can receive the ball in different ways. He, he doesn't have to receive it in just one way. He can receive it on the half turn. He can receive it back to goal. He's always got a picture in his head for the next pass. And what that means is that he can build play. And if he can build play, that means you can't target Shaka. So when Cochrane's there, you can target Shaka because Cochrane can't build play. So you know we're not going to build through him. So when Shaka, when the ball's going to Shaka as he's travelling, you can press him, get his head down, dispossess him, then we're on the recovery. So for me, if you're going to have two there, which again we can debate, you need two that can build. You need two that want to move the ball quickly. And you need two that want to pass to each other and are aware of their defensive and offensive distances. And what this does to the rest of the teams, the rest of the teams see it happening and they come and join in. And so we get a collective, much tighter unit. And if you look at Arsenal as a group, our major weakness is probably our defensive mobility. That becomes less of a weakness if we're closer together because it's much harder to pass through and run through us. So, you know, for the first time in ages, we saw something different on the pitch, saw something tactically different. And, it, and it, I thought it looked really good. I don't know how you guys felt, but I thought it looked great. Well, I, th I think that's quite a, a neat segue because, Paul, I was I was going to ask you, um, I'm going to take a bit of a leap and presume that you, you thought that Jacques and Elneny worked, worked together quite well as well. Um, yeah. But how do you think they will hold against opponents that put them under more pressure? And I mean that in two different ways, both opponents that look to press them when they're on the ball, but also opponents that attack us a little bit more because West Ham were a little bit generous. They did allow space and time. Um, so, for example, on Monday at Selhurst Park, 
um, are you putting Jacker and Elneny together or would you look at bringing someone like Coquelin back in because we're likely to get a bit more of a game at Selhurst Park than, than we did on Wednesday? Yeah, well, Coquelin is back apparently. I hadn't caught all the background to that, but apparently he had some family stuff which meant he wasn't available, which is why he didn't play. Um, so I'm probably late to the party on that, so I'm like, oh, gulp. I mean, I like Coquelin and all that, but but it hasn't been working recently in terms of his pairings, so it'll be really interesting to see with Ox and Ramsey now back. I mean, that, that's that's a big question. Who gets picked? You assume Chaka. Um, i gotta got to say this, though. I mean, I think we've hinted around it, but that was an incredibly enjoyable match to watch. Um, and I don't think it was just because we tranced West Ham and we scored three goals. The The... The speed at which we move the ball, I think that's largely down to Chaka and um, and El Neni. Uh, but you know, probably in almost equal measure, but certainly Chaka. I mean, he just his ability to move it long and play short passes really kind of kept us ticking along. So it was a to me, it was the most fun I've had watching Arsenal in a long time, and not because we beat West Ham three zero. Um, in fact, I was enjoying the snot out of it when we were zero zero, and I, I, I'll, I'll get I'll look for your input on this, Tim, as you were mm. uh, indubitably at the game. But it seemed like maybe it was the fact that it was a, a an evening game midweek that it was another one of those strange the crowd is in a funny mood kind of thing. But mm. uh, I mean, it seemed like the crowd was enjoying the snot out of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they were, and it's it's quite weird. I was I was super confident before this game. Um, you know, people are asking me, "What do you think is going to happen?" And uh, I predicted two nil, but I I said like comfortable two nil. Um, you know, where West Ham barely have a sniff. I, I really I, I don't know why, but maybe it's just because of the shape West Ham are in, because of the type of team they are. I, w- I was absolutely convinced, and and, may, and you know a lot of it was because we put a building block in against Man City, which wasn't a great yeah. performance, but it was enough, I think, to steer us on the right course. And I th- I think West Ham at home was the perfect fixture uh, for for the kind of moment we're in at the moment. Yeah, I think that that uh, percolating. Uh, kind of midweek, slightly partyish mood wouldn't have done the team any harm. Who seemed to be in uh, a more confident start and a more confident mood, and maybe the fact that they hadn't scored a goal up to whatever it was, fifty something minutes. Uh, the fact that the crowd wasn't overly shitting themselves did them no harm either. So there was a good symbiosis there. But to your question, um, I thought. Uh, West Ham actually played very well for till they were like about a goal and a half behind. Um, I thought they pressed pretty well. The only area they didn't really get to grips with was the the two we're talking about. They never really got their hooks into Chaka or El Neni, but they worked pretty hard elsewhere. I wasn't surprised that when we got the goal and a bit uh, and dominated them, that eventually kind of their energy and their legs went. But I thought they'd actually done pretty well. I thought they were uh, creditable opponents until we punctured their balloon. Um, So on the one hand, that gave me some confidence that this might have some legs beyond 
at West Ham to a, as you say, a more pressurizing uh, team. Um, because I put some of the credit to them not getting pressed to the fact that they just moved the ball very quickly between them. Um, on the other hand, I, I, about a minute after the first goal, Chaka got pressed properly for the first time, and it was a classic Chaka moment of his own making where he had a bit of time, uh, kind of got the ball caught up under his feet, and before he knew it, he had two West Ham players on him, uh, not too far from the corner of our box, dropped us in it and gave them a really good chance that they didn't do anything with. So it's kind of, it, I saw both sides of, of it. I, I think we they played the ball and moved it really well and saved themselves from getting pressed. Again, you know, a very good team will get their claws into them and then we'll see. But yes, it would worry me. The one point I did want to pick up from last time is more an open question, which was uh, we kind of danced around this, but you guys don't think Chaka's very quick, very fast, especially without the ball and moving backwards. And while I see all that, um, I don't know how bad he is because he's, he's got some pace, he's got some movement, he can get plenty of tackles in. It's not that I don't recognize the problem, I just wonder how big a problem it is. Mm. Um, and uh, It's almost like he's just slow to react mentally because when he gets going, he's not fast, but he's actually, he, he covers the ground reasonably well. Um, yeah, he's not, I think he doesn't lumber, does he? He's not, yeah, he's not, he's not awful. He, you know, we, we did talk about Pirlo not so much saying he's the same as Pirlo, but hey, if Pirlo can get by in life, surely Chaka can. We talked about that on the last pod. Mm. You know, the way, so, the way, can, I, yeah. can I come on this one, Paul? Sure. I mean, the, the way I see it, right, as a player, you have default reactions, right? So he's, he's default. His default positive game is when the ball comes, he's got variation of paths. He's got a picture, and he can, he can fit it on the ground. He can chip it short, long. He's got every golf club in his back, right? So, but his default reactions when he's in space defensively on the recovery they're, they're not as smooth, right? So it's not so much that he can't run. It's his reaction to the fear of having to run and what he does in that situation that's causing him problems. And then what he's doing, he's in, he doesn't want to run into spaces, so he, he tries to shortcut. And the shortcut for him is to go to ground and make a spectacular tackle. And at the moment, you know, that, that's coming off like four times out of ten. And every time it doesn't come off, it's a card, right? Yeah. So it's his reaction to that feeling that he's alone in wide spaces. So, and so again, here's my pop psych theory on that one, Clive, just quickly. Mm -hmm. It's that he's a control freak, which I like, and I think it'll pay off in the end. Yeah, and he doesn't, I do like, I, he, do, he doesn't like when he's not in control in midfield, when he fucks up or when he's, the guy's gone past him and he's been slow to react and he takes him down because he hasn't matured enough to accept sometimes yeah. the, that happens. Know, the guy, yeah, the guy's gone past you. I thought, do you remember that moment? Uh, it was, it was like 10 minutes into it where he nutmegged their guy. Yeah. Nutmeg noble. noble. Yeah. 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 It was noble. That's right. I mean, it's like, you know, on 60 minutes, he gets himself tongue-tied with the ball at his feet with nobody around him and has two guys on him. On 10 minutes, he fucking nutmegs the guy, which was truly Pirlo-esque, out of nowhere, um, and opened up the pitch. So um, uh, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how he develops. He, he's an interesting conundrum. He's a mix 
of both of those. I mean, there's definitely an issue. I'm not saying that. It, it's just going to be interesting how it develops and and uh, how El Neni develops because I think we all know what the issues potentially are with those guys, and we haven't really seen it tested in anger. But I think that West Ham are better than gave us a better run than we might have thought in terms of pressing. And yeah. uh, I'm hoping it was the fact that Chaka and El Neni just moved the ball quickly that that made us look good. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's all very fair. I, I think um, you're right. He's a, he's a fascinating player. And when you were just talking there about him being a bit of a control freak, I remember very vividly on Sunday against Man City because it happened right beneath me. Um, he had actually already been booked. And there was a point where I don't think it was him that lost the ball necessarily. And I think it was in the first half and Sterling was about to go past him. Mm. And um, he just... He panicked he and he just, he grabbed him. He just, and, and he like, he hadn't even got the afterburners on yet. He hadn't started, which is why he, he got away with it and wasn't booked because he didn't drag him back. But yeah. he, he got that panic and he literally, he almost bear hugged him to stop him from running because he could see what was about to develop. And because um, he, he had, you know, he could have gone and got to the ball, but he, it was a bit rabbit in the headlights because he thought, if I go to the ball and don't make it, Sterling's running in behind me. And he just, he panicked and he just held him. But he didn't quite hold him long enough to attract the attention of the ref. And he was behind him already. So it, it kind of didn't show up. It was only because I remember it being right beneath me. So I think that's um, that's a very good point about perhaps something to do with his something psychology. Watch, yeah. yeah, definitely. It's a um, great shout, Paul. Great shout. You absolutely spoke. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um Clive, uh, we all, uh, another thing we spoke about on the Manchester City pod, we spoke about who might replace Laurent Koscielny and um, we all thought it would be Gabriel. And Gabriel's a, a player who's come in for quite a tough time from fans over the last year or so. And it's, it's not difficult to see why. He's had some shaky moments and some shaky performances. But I think we, we spoke about the fact that we've seen some really good moments and some really good performances from him and therefore... He, there must be a good defender there somewhere. Um, and sure enough, it was him that came in for for uh, Koscielny at centre-half. And, and I understand why that created some anxiety because Gabriel played at Upton Park uh, a year ago when Andy Carroll scored a hat-trick and he, he just didn't deal with him at all. Um, on this occasion, I, I thought I thought Gabriel was absolutely excellent. Um, what, do, what did you make of his performance and... Do you think that he really, really acquitted himself because of what happened last year? Do you think um, there was a sense to which he was either learning from his mistakes against Andy Carroll last year, or you know that he was just really determined to put the, the record straight there? Well, I, I think there's a player in him, I know. but let me tell you where I'm coming from, really. So, I always prefer you know centre halves that, that can run. Right? I'm not saying I didn't like Mertesacker, but I always felt sometimes watching us it's like watching watching Koscielny do one and a half jobs to make sure he covered him. Per has his strengths, but he also has his has a glaring weakness. So and what that does, it forces us to stand in a different place on the pitch. It makes the pitch bigger. It sometimes makes our midfielders' jobs a lot harder. We can't be so compact, we can't combine, we can't press people, right? So um so when Gabriel came in, I was pleased to see a centre half coming that can that can run and jump and compete with anybody. And 
And when he first came in, I, I, I would have liked him no matter what he did because he had the right attributes. Then he did get a bit erratic and he did get a little bit, you know, the Costa issues maybe affect his confidence more than we realise. But this time, he's been in and out of the team. It's hard to get some rhythm. But this time, he's come back last two games and he just looks different. He just looks more composed. He just looks more in control. Ota- and I know so. Clive, authoritative was the word. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish it hadn't been because I'm having trouble saying it. But, <laughs> you know, he played really, really well. But the one thing I felt that you don't always see with him, you often, I always think of him as the wild man, even when he plays yep. well. And this was just, this was a different Gabrielle, as Tim said. There was just authority. If you'd never seen him before, you'd say, fuck, he's good. Just straight up good. Yeah, he, he is good. He's got, I mean, while I have a little theory on him, right? And this is my theory. And um, I did watch a few of the, you know, like when, when we're going to sign a player, what do we all do? We all go to YouTube, to me, right? So um, so I went to watch the old, you know, the old tapes when he was in Spain. And it was quite clear that he was the lead of the defence, right? He was definitely in the defence. And he was the one doing all the pointing and he was the one doing all the last-ditch tackles. Okay, it's YouTube clips, right? It's not going to show you things that are not, that are pretty standard. But it seemed to me that he was the leader. And I've always had a sneaking feeling that when he plays with Arsenal, when, say, Koscielny's there, he's not the leader. He's like the second defender. And I just felt maybe... I don't, I don't know how you felt, Tim, I was in the stadium as well, but I don't know how you felt, but I thought he looked more of a leader. He looked more assertive, mm. more authoritative. And I think that's what he wants to be. And I, and I asked, well, he's never going to be that player while Koscielny's there, while World Cup winner Mustafi's there. But I thought he got closer to being that leader. And I wonder if we ever were to trust him, how good he could be. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there. I just wonder if that could get the, the 20% that probably inside of him that we haven't seen yet. It's quite possible. Um, Paul, what, what do you think um, with regards to, to Gabriel and his performance? Yeah, uh, um, I'll be interested to get your take because I, I always sense you have a, a certain uh, passion or interest in his outcome. But I, I thought he was excellent. But really what I'd like to say about Gabriel is absolutely nothing because I just thought he was so solidly excellent. The, to me, there was nothing that leapt out of me. He was where he needed to be. He, he's what you want from a centre-back, somebody who doesn't make you think about him too much. Now, mm. in contrast to that, but, but there really was an aura about him that, that I hadn't seen, I don't think, before this. I, for me, this was his game, his standout game. Mustafi... Um, was catching the eye doing all sorts of stuff. Now it all came off, but it, it was an inter- for me. It was an interesting contrast, and maybe it was just the way I ended up seeing the game. Uh, I saw Mustafi at the start doing a lot of thing- pointing and organizing people and kind of acting like the leader of the team. But maybe that was just the camera angles on the TV. Maybe the, as the game progressed, you know the the division of labor was a little different. To me, Mustafi played the Koscielny game against Carroll. He was kind of preemptive, uh, yeah. nipping in around his heels. I mean, obviously, he's a foot shorter. Well, maybe not. But uh, so his his we saw him a couple of times race upfield to get pole position on a header. He had no right to win and yet would win it against Carroll. 
Um, I think Gabriel was almost the more stable of the two in terms of centre-back, and Mustafi was the guy who was there to hound Carroll and nip at his heels. And between the two of them, whatever they did, I mean, Carroll had a, a, a zero of a game, uh, never got on the end. Now, one or two of the crosses they had. The, the one mistake we had made as a team was we gave away a bunch of stupid free kicks in the first mm. half that could have really hurt us, um, which was the weakness in our game because obviously beforehand Wenger was talking about Carroll and the way to stop Carroll was to stop the crosses coming in. I thought we did that brilliantly because they basically got no crosses in apart from three or four set pieces we had no right given away, but we didn't get punished for them, so it'll be a footnote in history. But I think we did great on Carroll because of those two guys, and I think Mustafi deserves a lot of credit, and great at cutting out the crosses. Uh, Maybe they didn't have the wingers to put in the crosses, but um, I think we killed them at source, so that was kind of my take on it. I think a very heartening performance from the two centre-backs. Lessons learned by the team in general, that it's a team defence game, and if you cut it out at source, you don't have to be doing with those crosses into the far post that uh, have crippled us in the last few games. Can, can yeah. I say one more bit on, sorry Tim, can I say one more bit on Gabriel? Actually, yeah. I'm, rather than being a leader, I think when Koscielny plays, he, he owns our back door, right? So we know that he, if you get past him, it's a shot, right? So uh, he owns our back door, right? So, and when Murtasaka plays, he's the one that covers round. When Mustafi plays, he's the one that covers round. Maybe Gabriel, we, we gave him the ownership of the back door, so he looked like our main man you had to get past, you know, our last man. I think that responsibility suits him rather than, say, as a leader, if you see what I mean. Having that responsibility, he's very quick. He covers the ground incredibly well. He covers distances really well. And he sees things. And I think, I think we've used him a bit more on the front foot. And actually, maybe he's more of a back foot defender that can cover mm. and really, you know, really own that part of our pitch for us. So, um it was very interesting, and what we talk about so far, we're finding a few players here, aren't we? All of a sudden, that we've that we've lost. You yeah, know, that we're finding a few. Yeah, and I, I think um, to kind of to chime in a little bit on Gabriel, I think there's two things. Um, first of all, I, I think you're right in terms of giving him ownership. In when he was playing for Vitoria in Brazil, he was often uh, he, he actually played at fullback quite a bit, but the reason for that was that he used to man mark. Um, players and in the 2012 Copa del Brasil final he was uh, charged with man marking Neymar in the first leg of the final and Neymar didn't get a kick now this was like 18 19 year old Neymar but still an exceptional talent Um, in the second leg they didn't do that they dropped Gabriel back into centre half and he wasn't given the responsibility of man marking Neymar and Neymar tore them apart um, so they made a bit of a mistake there. I think the second thing, I think it's interesting what you say about, um, you know, the quote unquote, not so much leadership, but the kind of, you know, owning the defence. I, I think um, communication cannot be underestimated in terms of what has made, um, what has made things dif- difficult for Gabriel at times. And uh, he still doesn't speak an awful lot of English. And I know I said this on the last podcast, but I really think it's worth reiterating. Another one of the problems he has playing next to Lauren Koscielny is he can't talk to him. Um, They don't speak the same language. In this back five, it's entirely Spanish speaking. 
Um, all five, all five of the players in that back five that finished um, the Man City game with Ospina, and even when we put Martinez in, Argentinian, Spanish speaking, and I really, really don't think you can underestimate how much of a difference that makes for any defender. But I think that's especially for Gabriel, who's been here for two years, who I probably don't think feels still fit quite feels like London and Arsenal is like really really his home but then he gets dropped into a back five where he can talk to everyone all of a sudden it's probably quite a liberating experience for him um, and Paul one of the people I mentioned there in that back five Spanish speaking was Emi Martinez mm. um, who came in for David Ospina in goal now I was a little bit worried about the prospect of a spinner in goal because again he played at Upton Park last year when when Andy Carroll scored the hat trick and you know a spinner is a fairly typical South American goalkeeper and that he's a good shot stopper but he doesn't come off his line a lot. In fact, he doesn't even get on his line <laughs> quite a lot of the time. <laughs> and you know you contrast our last two games. I, I think I lost two at Upton Park against Andy Carroll. We had a Spina in goal for one and Carroll scores a hat-trick. We had Chesney in goal the season before and Chesney, it was a masterclass from Wojciech Chesney because he loves coming off his line and collecting that ball and he just did it all afternoon. And so I was a little bit apprehensive about a Spina. Um, I don't think any of us have really seen that much of Emi Martinez. Um, and I know he wasn't put under a huge amount of pressure but again, I, th I thought that there was um, a pretty good performance there, um, particularly with his distribution. And I think maybe the fact that he's a young goalkeeper, whereas now, you know, young goalkeepers from the time they're, you know, out of short trousers and in football clubs, they're taught how to pass the ball. Whereas mm. someone like Petr Cech has probably had to learn how to do it during his career. Um, how impressed were you by Emi Martinez and... Assuming you were impressed, how much of that do you put down to the fact that West Ham, you know, didn't really give us that much to think about defensively? Well, it does make you think that, um, you know, maybe a little bit of it is not, not that they didn't try to play their game, but they wouldn't have had quite the same belief that there was a pot of gold at the end of it with a six foot four keeper there as a, a guy who feels like he's he's 5'8". Um, so I'm not saying they changed their plan, but but it didn't hurt us that they didn't think there was there was automatic goal there if they just got a cross in. Um, I thought his there was a, a go, there was a save he made, I think it was at, just after the first goal, the one that moved in the air, uh, which was a really mm. tricky save. And you you could tell it was because he gave uh, Lanzini the look of of that was a good one, and Lanzini had a, Lanzini had a big grin on his face because he knew he'd caught it full on and it moved. So um, I thought he did really well on that one. And a good one later on. He covered the the free kick early. The Lanzini's first free kick, which was just over the bar, but even if it hadn't have been, um, Martinez's arm was about six six inches above the bar. Which uh, again, compared to Ospina, who's who's probably would have made it too, but it shows you the wingspan of the guy. Um, and again, I think Wenger talked about it. The key thing about Martinez, although he didn't have too much to do, was he looked like he was born for it. Um, 
Now, it'll be interesting to see how many games he gets. Sounds like he'll get the Crystal Palace one, which is good, because uh, that could have plenty of aerials and, and plenty of work for him yet again. And sounds like Czech might be back after that. It'd be kind of tragic and ironic if Ospina uh, went from kind of having the cups and everything looking great and then getting a start in the league and thinking, oh, this could really be a hell of an end to the season, that his injury is such that he's now lost the league starts and might lose out on the FA Cup semi-final. And then where does that leave him? So kind of a little minor tragedy for him. Um but yeah, so far so good on Emmy. I thought he really looked good. He he seems very confident w- when he talks. He talks as a guy who seems to think he might be the future here. And he's he's an interesting counterpoint to Chesney in terms of what they can both do and how they're both built and the fact that they're both youngish. He's very young at 24, but um, so might be interesting if Emmy's the reason Chesney doesn't make it back to the team. Yeah, and Clive, I, I think that was uh, what I was going to pick up on with you. Um, you know, Emmy Martinez, he's really got something to play for because David Espina has one year left on his contract. He's, I think he's very unlikely to extend and stay past the summer. It looks like Wenger's uh, patience with Chesney expired quite a while ago. Petr Cech is going to be 35 in a couple of weeks. Um, so Emmy's really got something to play for, um, and 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 I think that showed. Um, what did you make of his performance? Yeah, I, I thought he was fantastic, and um, he, he's somebody that's. He, I think he signed a contract. I mean, I'm sure you know Tim. It's probably it's either yeah, five did. or six years. Wasn't it? it was yeah. a long contract, and when you get that from a club, that's that's a huge sign of faith in you, right? and. Um, and so what do I do? I always go to YouTube <laughs> when that happens. And I watch some of the training videos. And um, I don't know if you've seen some skill videos that he does. He's done some stuff with the World Cup, you know, trapping the ball from like 50 feet in the air, wherever he was. And I mean, he has got, he is a fantastic footballer. You know, his feet are amazing. And um, you watch him in the training videos and he looks really good. So he's not a Fraser Forster feet of clay job. You know, he's he's a pro, he's a big goalkeeper, but he's agile with it. And so also they've they've seen something in him, and to give him that contract, and he's he he's probably playing for you know a reduced future. If you see what I mean by that, his, his chance is going to come a lot quicker. You know, so um, because there's decisions to be made here. I agree with you. There's, there's already stories about Ospina going to Turkey in the summer. That potentially that deal's been done already. I don't think he's going to be here. So he's Martinez going to go to number two. He's Czech going to have one more year. And Martinez being number two and see where he ends up. I mean, he's on the upward curve for sure. And and much like much like Paul talking about Gabriel and how he felt. I mean, how you felt with Martinez was. There was no problem there. There was no problem at all. I think if a goalkeeper makes you feel that way, then that's a great start. He looked like he was meant to be there. And when Wenger talked about him as well, not just the words, in my role as the the arson whisperer, I mean, he just sounded like a guy who, who really believed Martinez was the one. Yeah, definitely. But sometimes, I mean, with Ospina, he's had some amazing games. And we look back and think, wow, I'm glad he was there. Right? 
but I always feel slightly less comfortable, and it's a, it's probably a bit sizeist, but I just don't feel as comfortable. And um, and when he has amazing games, I'm sort of surprised a little bit. It's not to criticise him because he's a very good goalkeeper, but this this kid made me feel really comfortable. I think he's got a great future. Yeah, I, I one of the things I liked about you know particularly with his feet, um, comfortable passing the ball on both feet. In fact, it took me. Um, until our first goal kick to work out which was his strong foot because I haven't, you know, just haven't seen that much of him because even when I was going to watch the reserves, he wasn't really playing for the reserves. He was out on loan. And um, the times I've seen him have been so far apart that I, I just couldn't remember. And yeah, because he was passing the ball right foot and left foot and it, it took till our first goal kick that I, that I realised he was actually right-footed, which, I, you know, I think is in the modern game is a really, really valuable skill for a goalkeeper. Um, Clive, I'm going to stay with you for a guy who isn't two-footed um, at all, but Mesut Ozil, it looked like we got a little glimpse of the old Mesut Ozil, particularly after that goal went in. I think for 10 minutes after that goal, he looked like he was flying again. Um, is Dare we say it? Is is he back? Him and Sanchez playing off each other as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, with with Erzon, um, he gets criticised for his body language, but it's his number one indicator of how he's feeling. And it goes both ways. When he's not feeling well, he can just walk. When he's feeling well, he can just he just. Like he's got a motorbike on his boots, he just goes across the grass and um, glides, and he just glides, and he just makes he makes running look ridiculously easy, and um, it's something you see really in the stadium. You can see it when he makes them channel runs. He just he can really he's got gears, he can accelerate, and he just he runs perfectly. His action is perfect, but he's always even at top speed. He seems to always knows where to slow down so he's in control of the next movement I mean he's not just running it's control of his body his core strength everything about him it just looks right you know he's a he's a, he's a wonderful footballer but we haven't seen him since December mm. maybe late November mm. and here we are in April it's a long time it's a long time to wait for your for your marquee player to to wake up but he definitely looks like another player we found that is on the way back. But it's his, he's cute running off the ball. I mean, we all know him. We all know what he's got. And when we see it, it looks perfect. But where does it go? Where does it yeah. go? Cause we're, we're, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't just it disappears, doesn't it, off the face of the earth. I mean, there's no middle ground here. It just goes. And when you see it, you think, crikey, Good job I never slaughtered him. Good job I never went public on Twitter and said, let's get rid of him <laughs> because he looks fantastic. And, um, and and that's a dilemma for many fans, right? And that's a dilemma for many pundits. That's why he gets criticised. You know, his, his top game is top, but his bottom game is something to be ridiculed. And Paul, what did, did, you, um, what did you make of the goal celebration when he scored when every player ran over towards him um, and he you know he's not the most effusive of players but you know he gave a real kind of air punch um, yeah. you know did, yeah. did you did you feel like that was a moment that just 
that everyone realised that that you know Mesut Özil might be kind of unlocked again, like like you know we freed the princess from the tower. <laughs> uh, I did. Now that you mentioned it, I didn't really clock it in just in the flow of the thing. To me, this was. I tell you what I loved about this game. I love a game that confounds your theories. And I mean you guys' theories, and I mean my theory, I mean everybody's theories out there. Uh, there weren't too many theories on players that survived this game in some ways, right? Uh, w- w- it proved some of our individual theories and completely discounted others. And I think that's across the board, depending on what player and what fan is talking about it. Now, it's only one game, and it was only West Ham, but I think it was a, I still maintain it was a decent West Ham in fact, a very good West Ham uh, until we got that first nail in the coffin. And you go around the pitch and you, you can talk about each player in, in this particular game. Ozil was, I mean, he was much better against City, but he wasn't cured. This was fucking Lazarus. He was just, he was brilliant. And he was strong, he was fast, he was energetic. Um, uh, I think the celebration does say a lot. I think the team's been under a lot of pressure and this was certainly a, a release valve moment for this player and for this team um, the one thing I'd say generally is until this goal we were playing great and so unlike in other games where that first game was the fa- first goal let us relax I mean this did let us relax and we played even better but this was the best football. This was very much Wenger ball. This was very much pinging it around. And he and Sanchez, before that goal, were having fun. I mean, the, even if we'd never got a goal, all right, we'd be crying in our cornflakes right now. But it, even if there hadn't been a goal, the interplay between those two had was back to uh, earlier in the season where we were cooing about uh, how they were finding each other and playing off each other. This was just superb. Um, you know, Bellerin was a big step up to me from where he had been before and now. I guess he was only up against Musuaku on that wing. But himself and uh, Walcott were doing one-twos down the wing in the first half and carving them wide open. So, you, uh, And Walcott as well, the story, you know, he got the captain's armband. That the captain's story just won't die. Um, that's kind of a nice thing for Theo because I do think the manager will appreciate greatly the leadership role Theo played over the last few weeks when he wasn't sure who else was fighting for him and backing him the way he... Not that they had turned on him, but that they just weren't quite shown up. Theo's been plugging away, saying the right things, playing hard, not always playing great, but playing hard, getting stuck in, scoring goals. Um, So I think when you go around the pitch, you you can find an argument all over the place that this was kind of a confounding game, uh, and for some players, maybe a series of games. But yeah, I think the Ozil moment was big. And when you look at the rest of our season and the fact that we need to basically string 10 games together, you could look at this as a seminal game for Ozil Ozil Sanchez and for this team in, in general. They seem to have shaken off a mentality. Again, it's only one game. But and I'm going to stay with you there, Paul, because you kind of began to answer my next question. I was going to give you the dream question um, for you. Um, Theo Walcott uh, wore, the, wore the captain's armband, of course, um, was a bit unhappy about being subbed against Man City, but I don't think that's any bad thing. 
um, for him to bear teeth in that situation. Yep. Um, 19 goals this season now. He's scored against Bayern. He's scored against Chelsea. He scored home and away against City. He scored against Liverpool. Um, he doesn't it, score in he, big games. <laughs> he's... <laughs> Is, is he still a bit inconsistent or is he quietly having an excellent season and nobody's noticing because of the whole Arsenal crisis, Arsene Wenger stuff that's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think a bit of both in the sense that if you don't understand Theo and maybe you don't, people shouldn't have to make allowances for players. But he's, we all know he's a, he's a very limited player. He's the classic... Uh, he has a particular set of skills. If a game doesn't suit him, it just doesn't fucking suit him. Um, he's not going to build play on his own. Uh, the only way he'll make his own goal is by tripping in the middle of the field and everybody thinks he's screwed. And the next thing he hops up and runs past everybody, but he only does that once a season. Um, so there are certain games he's going to look like he's being inconsistent. Now, he mightn't have had a a standout game. He mightn't have done very much, but it's not the same as him being out of form or him, I would say, being inconsistent. I think he's been, he's brought it all season long. He's been hungry from the get-go. Everybody talks about him working his nuts over off over the summer, getting angry about not getting picked for England. They've just not picked him again, and he got pissed off and went and scored a goal in each game for us. They need to not pick Theo. They, but more than that, they need to convince him he's in with the shout and then not pick him for every tournament and every interlull. Because uh, an angry Theo, as ludicrous as that might have seemed before, the, before during, and after the summer, is... Uh, is a pretty fucking useful T.O. these days. He's getting stuck in all over the place. He's pressing hard like Alexis does on the other wing. You know, it was a very interesting front three with Danny. Danny's obviously nowhere near still 100%, but that's another game into his legs. Um, Whatever, he got about, what, 70 minutes before, 73 minutes Giroud came on, so he got 73 minutes there. He had a limp at one point, but he seemed to run that off. So he's uh, to me, that was a, a sign that, He's still, and they are, being very protective of him. So we haven't remotely seen the best of Danny yet. But we've got a lot of running in those front three um, that helps cover a little bit for Ozil when he's a little lackluster, which he isn't at the moment. Uh, Two center mids uh, who move the ball quickly and therefore kind of keep the ball in our court. So maybe we can get some mileage out of this if the manager isn't tempted to change the setup too much. But Theo, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel he's vindicating himself, especially to the crowd who say stuff like, he only tries in a contract year. That's, <laughs> that's clearly not this year. That, that's always been a bit of a myth. Clive, um, what have you made of, of Theo Walcott's season this year? <laughs> I, got, I, I must admit, I don't, I don't always get it. Right, so um, when we lose, I, I do take it out on him a little bit because I, I won't have more touches. And I think it's just for us to recognise the games that suit him, the partnerships yeah. that suit him, and then and play him in those moments. And when we need something else, recognise that. Whether he's in form or not, don't play him. You know? So he does very well at home. And it's quite interesting that you were talking there, Paul, and I was just thinking about this. Uh, even through this discussion, we're talking about partnerships. Right, so the Bellerin Walcott partnership, it works. 
Bellerin has been. I, I, I saw the green shoots before this, and even though he gave the goal away against City, he's he's underlap running and he's driving inside Walcott's shoulder, outside. The variation of angles offensively has been excellent. That's got a lot of potential, those two. Uh, Clive, you know, did you notice, and Tim, that uh, did Bellerin spend quite a bit more time infield almost? He like did, a, he did. Almost like, like I said, a, the mid. Like uh, Guardiola had told him to yeah. tuck in a bit. And exactly. He had two runs through the middle of the box, but he didn't come from his side. He came from central or even from slightly left. The one where he, he should have scored was, yeah, yeah. you look at the angle of the run, it isn't even from the right back position. He has yeah, done that a little bit more in recent yeah. months. Um, he's he does been receiving the ball in central midfield from defence as well, yeah. Which says that him and Walcott are comfortable with who's doing what and who's got what mm. coverage, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean he does it a lot, right? And I was having, yeah. I was having a conversation with um, with uh, with Jane Cavendish online, and and she even threw the theory out there that one day he could end up playing in centre midfield. He's mm. got the mobility, he's got the fitness, he's got the speed, he's quite good on the ball. And I thought that's a really interesting thought, right? So the partnership and the variation of runs with Theo has been excellent. On the left hand side, you know, post the City game, I mean, Mario and Sanchez have refound their partnership. And what Welbeck is doing is collapsing defences by running through them. And Theo is just running into the spaces. And so we've found the Ozil-Alexis partnership. We've got the Monreal-Alexis partnership. We've just found two centre-backs in a partnership. we got the right side back. And we've found the two centre-mids. we found a partnership there. And all of a sudden, Is it really smiling. a problem that Alexis is on the left? Well, I, I thought I thought about this actually, and I watched the game live, and I watched it again. I thought, well, actually, it, long as Erzul's near him, and long as he plays slightly inverted, it may not be a problem from a team shape perspective and from a passing shape perspective. Uh, is he getting enough Ozil shots like off? To hang out, you know, that's that's the yeah. corner he heads to. And then you think of Alexis putting that ball onto Bellerin's foot. It was the classic Alexis mm. over on the left wing, yep. steps on the ball, looks up. Chips it over I think the top it, perfectly. I think it limits him. I think it limits him, and I, I, I stand by that. But there's no reason why every now and again we can't just switch him, him and Danny, and switch him around, and just create a problem. I think we are we're so inflexible sometimes. Not when we're on the ball, but just say oh, about ten minutes, just just flip it, right, and, and let's get let's go central and keep Urzel and Sanchez closer together and go that way. But the pleasing thing is, these players are quite. Um, quite mobile, quite flexible. Okay, Theo is a bit one-dimensional, but his one-dimensional is very, very good. If the game suits him, we know what's going to happen. So um, I think he's made a big effort this year to be more effective when he hasn't got the ball. I think he's helped us a lot more defensively. Maybe our numbers don't show that, but I think he's put a real effort to not be a passenger, totally. He may not be a high-touch player, but he's made a real effort to get goal side, gain to contact, press the ball. And you can only, uh, as a player's been criticised, I always look at their reaction. and You can only praise him for at least trying to add to his game. And I know he didn't get picked for England, but I thought he was very unlucky not to be picked because I think he's made a big step forward this season. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you look at, I looked at that England squad. I've not always been Theo's biggest fan. Um, I think I, I recognise what his strengths are and I recognise what his limitations are and I kind of take those those two things together. So I'm not a hater, but I'm not his biggest fan either. But I looked at that, that last England squad 
and I just I just thought that oh, that looks painfully average, and I just thought that there's no way you can convince me that Walcott doesn't be- doesn't belong in that. I mean, even yeah. if you want to make a like a tactically he doesn't fit in argument, um, you know Theo coming off the bench, whatever shape you think you're playing, if you need a goal um, or you need someone to change it up a bit, at the very least, um, I, I don't think he's a player realistically lead. You leave out. I don't think that that squad's brimming with with too much talent. Um, as loath as I am to move to matters off the pitch, because it's really nice to discuss all these nice <laughs> partnerships and and this victory. Um, I do think there is something that we've got to address, and you know, it feels like a bit of a circus, really. All of this this kind of arson stuff, and it's obviously it's developing all the time because the clock's ticking. And people want to know what's happening, I think, both inside and outside the club um, at the moment. There are kind of suggestions that have emerged. I'm not sure they've emerged this week. They've, they've, they've come out in writing this week. But I think this has been bubbling for a few weeks now that potentially of a difference of opinion between Arsene Wenger and Ivan Gazidis. In his um, pre-West Ham press conference, you know, Wenger was a bit dismissive about the questions about structural changes and directors of football and he called them superficial and he kind of said, well, you know, we complicate things, but really you just want players that play well on the pitch. And then, you know, a couple of days later, some journalists that we all know are very well connected to Arsenal all come out again, and this is not the first time this has happened in the last couple of weeks, all come out with kind of the same story that Ivan's, Ivan's the white knight here. He's the one that wants the structural change. And, you know, when he spoke to the fans forum last Sunday, he used the phrase catalyst for change. And yeah. he magically wants all of these things that people have been talking about for the last three weeks, um, but doesn't seem to want to really put his name to it. Um, you know, that these, these stories do to me feel a bit like plants. My understanding of the situation is that as of this moment, the contract is not on the table, which is not to say that it won't be on the table or that the board don't want it to be. Um, but, you know, when Sir Chips uh, came out with this statement last month, he said there will be a mutual decision at the end of the season, future tense. And Ivan was fairly emphatic with the fans for him when he said, the contract's not on the table at the moment. Um, so it, it does kind of feel like there's something going on here where perhaps, I don't know if the contract's been offered on condition, that Arson takes his medicine and, you know, there are structural changes and he doesn't want that, or whether this is all just part of the dance of negotiation. Um, Paul, I'll come to you first. What, what do you make of this kind of, um, I hesitate to say soap opera because it might not be. Um, but what what do you make of all this? Do you think that there's there's a tension there, or do you think this is just a natural part of someone negotiating a new contract? You know, I don't even think it's a negotiating. And this is just my bias, right? I, I obviously we don't have enough facts or even threads of facts to say to put the picture together with any level of confidence my re my guess would be based on you know we all have our life experiences and what we've seen organizational behavior wise this just feels like um ivan had to talk to a fan group um he's having his name rubbished in the media 
directly and indirectly on social media as spineless and not taking a position that the the board are being portrayed as being spineless bottlers who won't take a position, who won't manage the manager, etc. And here he is meeting with the the supporter groups who, you know, that they've got some pointy pitchforks, or otherwise they wouldn't be meeting. Um, and they need to hear something. So what's he going to tell them? That everything's fine and that Arsenal's the ma- Arsenal's the man? They've got to, you know, the board has to show that they're willing to take a position and as custodians of the club, as as an active party in the nego- negotiations when things were going so badly. I mean, we he was meeting basically when we were so utterly shit that we were all, you know, catatonic. I don't know what... He had to say something. And if and if the, the truth of the matter is that... It, it, you know, it's all how you portray something. For example, is there a contract on the table? I bet there pretty much is. But they mm. may well have said, listen, with all the fucking shit going on right now, and this might have happened weeks ago, you know what, let's get back together later on in the season because Arson's basically saying, um, I- implying he's very strongly interested, but he wasn't ready to make the decision uh, the club is very strongly interested in him taking the position. I believe Stan must be. But again, there are some things that need to be sorted out. Um, I would imagine that there is tension between Ivan and Arson because, A, everybody sees sees the world different to Arson. Um, we all do. Everybody around Arson does. Everybody in football does. So there's no way... Uh, Ivan sees things exactly the same as Arson, and yet he's judged by it. He's judged publicly and in terms of his performance. But Stan backs Arson. I don't think anybody thinks that's otherwise. Um, mm. And Ivan's still a company man and the CEO, and he's the captain of the ship from a business standpoint. So are there tensions? Yes. Would they come out publicly and display those or leverage those or have an agenda that's different in public? I don't think so. I think whatever I could see phone calls going from Ivan to Stan, from occasionally from Arson when he's not too busy worried about football. But Arson said something very prescient but very obvious when being uh, targeted by the journalists which is he basically said win a few games and everything changes guess what Mm. it does and the other thing we should understand when arson knocked back the idea that there would be changes in directors of football and other things is that what he wasn't asked a philosophical question he was basically asked the, the question in the way all these questions are asked of him hey arson we hear you're doing so fucking shit that the only way you're get this wasn't how, what they said, but the implication was you're having your wings clipped, Arson, because things are going so badly. You might get back to be a manager next year, but it'll be under a director of, director of football. Now, given the week that was in it and the shit that he was dealing with, you can close your eyes and assume that Arson's going to knock that straight back with a, a li- listen, Sonny Jim. Uh, I know more about football than you've forgotten kind of thing. So I don't think we can tell too much. I suspect there are tensions. I suspect they may have shelved final discussions, but I don't think there are major hurdles here. That's my prejudice. Yeah, I 
I think um, I think Clive that I'd be incredibly surprised if we got an announcement before the end of the season. Um, I, I kind of agree. I think this has probably been shelved for then. Um, they've certainly said now they've shelved the Urzel and Alexis contracts, and I can't see why Arsenal's would be any different um, in that framework. Um, I think um, it, uh, and you know, Arsenal, Arsenal did kind of say the other week, you know, I know what I want to do. And I don't know, maybe that's him saying, look, the delay's not with me. Um, I, I know what I want and, you know, I've made my demands or maybe that's just, that's reading too much into it. I think at the very least we can say whether it's deliberate or not or whether there's anything behind it that Ivan and Arsene are at odds in their press line, in their public line. Um, what do you make of, of this whole kind of stew? Do you think there's there's something going on there or do you think we're all possibly just reading a bit too much into this? I, no, I do think there's something going on. And, um, and the reason, this is where I, it's a bit simpler explanation, but this is where I see it, right? So Ivan Gazidis is a, is a corporate guy. Right, so, and also from a corporate organisational structure perspective, we are not optimal. So, if he's a corporate guy, he's looking at this, he's looking at his single point of failure and thinking, this isn't healthy. I need layers here to work with. I need a proper reporting line. I need proper accountabilities. And it's not so much what we all think and what we all try to add up. Throughout this whole two, three months of turmoil. Probably some of the, the toughest turmoil in the, in 21 years nearly of Arsenal's reign. Gazidis has not made one single formal statement of support in any which way or form. And that, to me, is, speaks volumes, right? That's screaming. I'm, I'm not happy with this. I can't say anything. I'm not going to come out and, and overly support. But I want to see something different. And um, if anything's changed over the last couple of weeks, has been rather than we're all sitting here waiting for his decision in the press conference, it was like, who's going to make the announcement? And it's, it's going to be the club. And I do feel the club has moved the goalposts slightly. And there could be a, you know, there could be a target laid down for the rest of the season, the rest of the season goes, and discussion will happen at the end of the season. And, and that's no bad thing. Is that the first hint or sign of some form of accountability? Yeah. For, yeah, it feels like that to me, without being overdramatic. Just go on the statements and the facts of what you've heard and what you've not heard. And that's what I heard to, in, in the press conference. And that is what, this is what I sort of arrive at by what I've not heard from our chief executive. You know, so we've had one three-line statement from Sir Chips. That's been it formally the rest is just subjective and so you can only go on what's not been said or what's been said by the manager and it's shifted slightly from a single man's decision to the club will be announcing something so i do think there's something that's shifted in the last few weeks and i'll tell you now i'll put my i'll put my neck out there it would not surprise me in the slightest if he's not here next season interesting <laughs> interesting yeah, Doesn't I think the club um, always announced it, though. Isn't that just a statement to the bleeding obvious? It, it could well yeah. be, but he didn't feel like that before, did he? It felt like there was one man in charge of this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. To make a point of reasserting their position, and I just wonder how much of it is 
just but the that. club the club it could be you could be Paul you made a, you made a great shot of explaining this right so I'll just give you my shot that uh, you could be absolutely right but it's a club is not restating their position it's Fenger saying the club is going to state what's going to happen into the season not the club it's him right so he's obviously there's been a shift there it's been, in my opinion, it's been a shift. Maybe I'm being over dramatic and adding, and adding things up, which I tend to do, which I have been, <laughs> I have been called that before. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, organisation. I, I come from a corporate world, and so I've always felt there's been hierarchical issues at Arsenal. I've always felt we've had a single point of failure. I don't know who's in charge. We have got no accountability. I've always felt that um, we're not set up for high performance from a team perspective. But. And Arthur Wenger carries the brunt of that lack of organisational structure. There is no way a corporate man like Gazzini is going to allow that to continue past this next couple of years. And if he does, his own position should be under threat. And I wonder if one or both, you know, one of them won't be there come next season. And it'll be interesting to see a winter battle. I'll tell you um, something a little bit interesting about when Andreas Jonker was appointed as academy director. When um, Back in the days when Ivan used to meet with... Um, with groups like the AST, the fans forum is something slightly different. Um, It's about stadium issues, but he did used to meet with some of the supporters groups that were, shall we say, interested more in the corporate governance side of things. And uh, one of the things he used to kind of say was around about the time that Liam Brady, because, you know, Liam Brady had that effectively that period of gardening leave, but we were told he was leaving a long time before he did. And one of the things that Ivan really came out with, kind of all guns blazing, or as all guns blazing as a corporate man like Ivan does, was he w- he was basically saying the academy director that's going to be that will be my appointment. You watch, yeah. that's my appointment. Um, and actually, I think I'm right in saying that now Andreas Jonker is gone. Um, yeah. Wenger might have intimated the other week that it actually wasn't really his appointment, and not in a kind of old oh, don't blame me uh, kind of way, but he said something I think fairly fairly flippant really about it, it but that was that was Ivan saying this is my appointment um, I'm put, I, I'm taking you know this I'm taking charge here um, and actually Arson didn't have as far as I understand it um, a huge amount of input into that decision so you know that could have been Ivan and, and listen that that's probably fairly sensible isn't it if you're the CEO you come in yep you feel your way around and then after you know you've been there for you know been there five years when that appointment came up so yeah he's well within his rights then to say yep i've been here five years i know the club top to bottom now i know what i'm doing listen this is my job to take the heat off of you arse and you're like you do not need to be concerned with appointing the director of the academy um but you know the, the liam brady had been there for for quite a long time um and, you know, Arsenal has wrote back on a few things like the the overseas tours in pre-season and things like that. Uh, so, you know, slowly, slowly. And, you know, one of the things we were just talking about there is, is tension is not a bad thing. Um, you know, a little bit of tension at the top of any organisation is a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very fine balance. You know, we talk about the team sometimes and Alexis Sanchez, how does he... Does he upset the balance? Should the team come up to his level or is he being a bit of a prima donna? Where does that balance lie? It's kind of very similar at the top of an organisation. You need a little bit of um, creative tension, but if there's too much, it's 
it's you know it's problematic but if there's none it's problematic as well and and maybe this is just you know this the scale shifting a little bit and you know they the the board know that you know if arson signs this contract he's still not you know his 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 days are still numbered um one way or the other and they're going to be responsible um for that legacy and i i get the sense they know that that they really know that this is what they will be judged on because everything else at the moment at the club, as far as everyone is concerned, is all just down to Arsene Wenger, however true it is. But they know that they've got to get this next appointment right. If they get it right, a lot of the heat comes off of them. If they get it wrong, then all of this anger you're seeing, you know, all these kind of angry people, they're not just going to chill out when Arsene goes. Um, they're, they're still going to be looking with a very keen eye at what we do next. And, you know, that angle will be ready to go if they mess up um, the succession planning and the appointment of the next man. So they know they're under pressure here, that effectively their reputation lives and dies on what they do after Arsene Wenger. Um, so, I, you I tell know, you, Tim, I would certainly agree that Ivan sees this as an opportunity to strengthen mm. his... Uh, position with Stan in terms of the changes he thinks needs made. I, I don't Paul, think Paul, he, could, I don't do you see it as, yeah. do you, sorry mate, do you see it as strengthening his position? I don't see it sure. as something as individual. I think what he's what he's trying to do is create a structure that strengthens the club's position. Yeah. But how far it, rather than his position. Yeah. At the moment, do you see yeah, what I mean? That, I'd rather look at that way. No, I'm not talking about a power play, but obviously he believes in his ideas as a corporate guy. He has a model yeah. for what he wants to move to. All of this chaos and these difficulties is you know, he must be bristling to say in the nicest possible way, I told you so, we need to make some of these changes. On the other hand, I don't think he's pushing it so hard that he's actually willing to create a division with Arsene. I just think that there's a stronger case now to make some of these changes sooner rather than later. But they can't really get into it till the season's over because Arsene's got his hands full. I don't think there'll be a huge gap between them. Arsene may well be more amenable to it. Uh, but they can't get into the detail of it. Stan may be more amenable to helping nudge Arson a little longer. Uh, but I think the biggest factor in all of this is that Ivan's talking to the supporter groups and uh, Arson's back, batting back the journalist, and that's where you see the biggest gap between their viewpoints. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree fundamentally, you're right, that there are those tensions, there is a difference in vision, uh, or maybe time scale as to when they want to move to these things. Yep, agreed. I think what's going to... Wenger's in departure lounge, right? Is whether it's going to be... The plane's going to take off in either two months, one year or two years. But I think this moment in our history has just said, okay, we need to move forward. How and when is that going to happen? And I think that's the debate that's happening. Yep, I, I think uh, that in a nutshell... Um, is is pretty much it, uh, gentlemen. We've been nearly seventy minutes, so we better leave it there. Uh, it's flown by. Um, thank for us, you. <laughs> for us, yeah. <laughs> probably not for the listener, who's probably <laughs> long Fuck since em. hurled themselves onto the track. Um, 
Uh, I'd really like to thank our guests this evening, Clive, who you can find on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thank you very much, Clive. Yeah, was it nice to talk about passing combinations and overlaps and underlaps? Oh my goodness, fantastic! Oh, wow. Really enjoyed that, mate. Thank that, you. That, that's why I had to ruin the ambiance and bring in the boardroom stuff. <laughs> and uh, thanks very much, as always, to Paul, who you can find on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Tim. Great job. Okay, and we will be back after the Crystal Palace game next week when we will be talking about another emphatic victory. I'm sure. Um, Elliot will be back from his cruise to Ah! bring some sunshine into our lives Um, so you've got that to look forward to thanks very much for listening as always and we will speak to you again very very soon, bye bye Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.